0: Thank you very much, thank you, thank you. Might have peaked peaked a bit early, but... (laughs) Welcome to my show. Uh, My show is called Nanette. And the reason my show is called Nanette is because I named it before I wrote it. (laughs) I named it at around the time I'd met a woman called Nanette, (laughs) who I thought was very interesting. So interesting, Nanette, I thought, I reckon I can squeeze a good hour of laughs out of you, Nanette, I reckon. (laughs) But, um, turns out... (laughs) No. I met her in a a small-town cafe. Now, I feel... I don't feel comfortable in a small town. I get a bit tense, uh, mainly because I'm in this situation. (laughs) And in a small town, that's all right from a distance. People are like, oh, good bloke. And then (laughs) you get a bit closer and it's like, oh, no, no, trickster woman, what are you doing? (laughs) I get a lot of side eye. (laughs) So I feel quite tense in a small town. Now, I'm from a small town, a very small town. um, I'm from Tasmania. uh, uh, Now, of course, Tasmania is that uh, little island floating off the, the arse end of mainland Australia there, just... Uh, lovely place, lovely place, famous for a lot of things, uh, potatoes, very, <laughs> and uh, our frighteningly small gene pool, that's, <laughs> I wish I was joking, <laughs> but I am very partial to the potato, <laughs> very versatile vegetable, um, and not all the Branches go directly away from the trunk in our family tree. I will admit, <laughs> it's a, it's a bit, it's a bit topery, But I, I love Tasmania. I I, love, I loved uh, growing up there. I felt right at home. I did. But I had to leave uh, as soon as I found out I was a little bit lesbian. <laughs> um, and you do find out, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I got a letter. <laughs> Dear Sir, Madam. (laughs) Wasn't a great letter to receive uh, in mid-90s Tasmania. Uh, Because the wisdom of the day is if you chose to be gay... (laughs) I say wisdom, even though homosexuality is clearly not a choice, but (laughs) wisdom is always relative, you know. And in a place like Tasmania, everything's very relative, but... (laughs) But uh, the wisdom of the day was that if you chose to be gay, then you should just get yourself a one-way ticket to the mainland and don't come back. (laughs) Gays, why don't you just pack your AIDS up into a suitcase there and fuck off to Mardi Gras? (laughs) Because homosexuality was a crime in Tasmania till 1997, not long enough ago. Uh, and I took a long time to come to terms with my sexuality. Um, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, a lot of it has to do with bad press. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they didn't get a good rap when I was growing up, the homosexuals. Um, <laughs> now we didn't have social media like we do now, but uh, letters to the editor, let me tell you. <laughs> Slow Twitter, brutal. <laughs> uh, but the Debate about uh, homosexuality, um, no one ever really talked about the lesbians. Do you know? Like it's all the gay men, they're the problem. Ain't <laughs> no sex, that's when the devil will get you. <laughs> but lesbians, they're like, no. <laughs> what even are they? What they do, they really ever. <laughs> <laughs> Do they even exist if no-one's watching, really? (laughs) No, no, all right, man. No harm in a cuddle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for a long time, I knew more facts about unicorns than I did about (laughs) lesbians. Another reason I struggled with... There are no facts about unicorns. Another reason I struggled to identify as gay was the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. Precisely that. The the, the Mardi Gras was my first introduction to my people. Um, I I watched it on um, my TV, in my little living room in my small town, that was my first introduction to my people. The Mardi Gras, my people, (laughs) flaunting their lifestyle in a parade. And I used to watch it going, oh, there they are, my people. <laughs> They're busy, aren't they? <laughs> Gosh, don't they love to dance and party? <laughs> I used to sit there and watch it and go, where, where do the quiet gays go? Where, where are the quiet gays supposed to go? I still do. like the pressure on my people (laughs) to express our identity and pride through the metaphor of party is very intense (laughs) and don't get me wrong I love the spectacle I really do but I've never felt compelled to get amongst it do you know I'm a quiet soul my favorite sound in the whole world is the sound of a teacup finding its place on a saucer Oh, it's very, very difficult to flaunt that lifestyle in a parade. <laughs> I don't even like the flag. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> there, I've said it. Now, <laughs> the pride flag. Now, I love what it means. That is perfect. Pride, wonderful. But the flag itself, a bit busy. It's just six very shouty, assertive colours stacked on top of each other. No rest for the eye. <laughs> An afternoon of that waving in my face, I need to express my identity through the metaphor of a nap. <laughs> uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think I'm very good at gay. <laughs> I'm not the only one who thinks that. I've... Uh... <laughs> I've been getting a bit of um, negative feedback of late from my people, the lesbians. <laughs> a bit of negative feedback. Uh, <laughs> gosh, don't my people love the feedback. Not, <laughs> Not shy. <laughs> Not shy with the feedback. Uh, one of our spokespeople last year, uh, self-appointed, um... <laughs> One of her spokespeople approached me straight after one of my shows uh, to give me a bit of feedback. And it's my favourite time for a bit of feedback. <laughs> straight after a show? Yes, please. Uh, that is when my skin is at its thickest. <laughs> the feedback, uh, apparently. She said, I was very disappointed in your show this year, Hannah. I just don't think there was enough lesbian content. I'd been on stage the whole time. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even straighten up halfway through, you know. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, I, perhaps I've been slacking off a bit. I, when I first started uh, the comedy over a decade ago, I, always, nothing but nothing but lesbian content. Wall to wall. My first ever show uh, was classic new gay comic 101, my coming out story. I told lots of cool jokes about homophobia, really solved that problem. Um, (laughs) Tick. Um, I told uh, I told a story about the time this young man had almost beaten me up because he thought... <laughs> I mean, he thought I was cracking on to his girlfriend. Uh, well, well, actually, that bit was true. Got that right. But <laughs> there was a twist. It, was, it happened late at night. It was a, uh, the bus stop. You know, the pub had closed. It was the last bus home. <laughs> I was waiting at the bus stop. And I was talking to a girl and, uh, you know, you could say, fl- could say flirting. I don't know. <laughs> and that out of nowhere he just comes up and starts shoving me going, ''Fuck off, you fucking faggot.'' And he goes, ''Keep away from my girlfriend, you fucking freak.'' And and she's just stepped in going, ''Whoa, stop it. It's a girl.'' And he's going, ''Whoa, sorry.'' (laughs) He said, ''Sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I don't hit women.'' He said, (laughs) ''What a guy.'' (laughs) ''I don't hit women.'' (laughs) ''How about you don't hit anyone?'' Good rule of thumb. He goes, sorry, <laughs> I got confused. He said, I thought you were a fucking faggot. <laughs> Trying to crack onto my girlfriend. <laughs> now, mm. now I, do, I do understand that I have a responsibility to help lead people out of ignorance at every opportunity I can, but I left him there, people. <laughs> Safety first. The main part of that show, the, the centrepiece of that show, was coming out to my family, and particularly my mum, because my mum is very funny. She lives a comedy better than I could ever write it. Because <laughs> her response to me coming out, when I first told her that I was a little bit lesbian... <laughs> ..baby steps... Uh, ..her response... ..her response was this. She's just going, oh, Hannah... <laughs> did you have to tell me that? That's not something I need to know. (laughs) I mean, what if I told you I was a murderer? (laughs) It's still funny. (laughs) And it's a fair call. Murderer. Murderer. (laughs) You would hope that's a phase. Still jokes. But uh, I reckon I've been slacking off in recent years with my lesbian content. I don't think I've been representing my people as, as, as much as I should, but you know, last year my grandma asked me if I had a boyfriend <laughs> and I realised in that moment that I'd quite forgotten <laughs> to come out to grandma. <laughs> so I remember it being on my to do list. I thought I'll wait till it comes up in conversation. But it never does. But finally it did. But I did not take the opportunity. No, I uh, deflected it like a real man. I said, nah. <laughs> nah, Grandma. Nah, I don't have time for boyfriends. (laughs) Plural. (laughs) Confident, wasn't I, that if I had time, oops. (laughs) And she said, ah, well, you never know. (laughs) One day, you might just walk around the corner and there he will be. Mr. Right, she called him. And I have been approaching every corner with caution, <laughs> since then. No, no offence to Mr. Wright, if you are out there, um, but you're also Mr. Very, very too late. Because I've done quite a lot of work on this lesbian situation here and uh, I don't imagine I've got a tight turning circle on identity. Imagine the feedback. <laughs> Not enough lesbian content. Do you you know what I reckon my problem is? I don't lesbian enough. (laughs) Not in the scheme of my existence. Not a lot. I mean, I keep my hand in. (laughs) Bit of lesbian content there. I'll be sprinkling it throughout the show. Keep your feedback forms to yourself. Um, no, I mean, if you were to plot my week, I oh, don't, no, no, not a lot. Not a lot of lesbianing gets done. I cook dinner more. I cook dinner way more than I lesbian, but nobody ever introduces me as that chef comedian, do that. <laughs> not enough lesbian content. I should quit. I'm a disgrace. What sort of comedian can't even make the lesbians laugh? <laughs> Every comedian ever. Oh, that's a good joke, isn't it? Classic. It's bulletproof too. Very clever because it's funny because it's true. <laughs> the only people who don't think it's funny are us lesers. But we've got to laugh because if we don't, proves the point. Checkmate. <laughs> Very clever joke. I, I didn't write that. That is not my joke. Um, it's an old, an oldie, oldie bit of goldie, a classic. It was written, you know, well before even women were funny. Um, <laughs> and uh, back then, in the good old days, uh, lesbian meant something different than it does now. Back then, it, lesbian wasn't about sexuality. A lesbian was just any woman not laughing at a man. Why aren't you laughing? What are you, some kind of lesbian? Classic. God, you got to laugh, you got to lighten up. Oh, stop taking everything so seriously. Fucking learn to take a joke. You need a lighten up. Tell you what you need, you need a lighten up. I tell you what you need, you need a good dicking. Get a cock up, you drink some juice. You got to... Actual advice? <laughs> it's counterproductive. I do think I have to quit comedy, though, and seriously, um, And it's probably not the forum to make such an announcement, is it? <laughs> um, in the middle of a comedy show. But I have been questioning, you know, this whole comedy thing. I do don't, I don't feel very comfortable in it anymore. Um, you know, for the past year, I've been questioning it and reassessing. And I think it's healthy for an adult human to take stock, pause and reassess. Uh, And when I first started doing the comedy, over a decade ago, my favourite comedian was Bill Cosby. (laughs) There you go. It's very healthy to reassess, isn't it? (laughs) And I've built a career out of self-deprecating humour. That's what I've built my career on. And I don't want to do that anymore. Because do you understand... Do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. If my comedy career is over, then so be it. I got a letter on Facebook recently, you know, and I say letter because I'm very bold, controversial, <laughs> but I'll call it a letter because it said, it said, dear Hannah, comma, new line. <laughs> Bit of feedback. Um, and it said, it said, you owe it to your community to come out as transgender. (laughs) Now, all jokes aside, I really do want to do my best by my community. I really do. But that was new information to me. (laughs) I'm not... I don't identify as transgender. I don't. Um, I mean, I'm clearly gender-not-normal, but uh, I I don't think even lesbian is the right identity fit for me. I really don't. I may as well come out now. I identify as tired there is too much hysteria around gender from you gender normals you're the weirdos you're the, you're a bit uh, hysterical that you're a bit weird you're a bit up top you need to get a grip you know you gender normals <laughs> seriously calm down gender normals get a grip no I'm in an address that's Weird. No, it's not. you know what's weird? Pink headbands on bald babies. <laughs> that's weird. I mean, seriously, would you put a bangle on a potato? <laughs> no, that's organic. I paid a lot for that potato. Now, of course, I understand why parents do it. Clearly, they're sick and tired of their beautiful baby girl being mistaken for a boy baby because of the no-hair situation. I understand that. But the thing is, I don't assume bald babies are boys. I assume they're angry feminists, and I treat them with respect. (laughs) How about this? How about we stop separating the children into opposing teams from day dot? How about we give them what? A good seven to ten years to consider themselves on the same side? <clears throat> Did you know human men and human women have more in common than they don't? Did you know that? I mean, I don't think many people do know that because we always just focus on the difference oh, the difference between men and women. Oh, they're very different. Nah, dogs are heaps differenter. (laughs) So, no, they're very different. Men and women are very different. We're from different planets. Men are from Mars and women are for his penis. (laughs) Here's an idea. I think we should get rid of pink and give all the babies blue. I've thought about this. And it's not because of the... uh, ..that blue is a masculine colour, because that is false (laughs) I love it that people go blue yeah blue is very masculine colour yep yeah very reliable very rational colour blue yeah you can trust blue oh that's why we've got it on flags yeah a lot of blue on flags navy blue everyone trusts a boat (laughs) blue if anything is a feminine colour it really is full of contradictions do you know blue is a cold colour it's on the cold end of the spectrum But the hottest part of the flame? Blue. (laughs) If you're feeling blue, you're sad. But optimism, blue skies ahead. (laughs) Make up your mind. (laughs) A blueprint is a plan, but if something happens that's not on the plan, where does that come from? Out of the blue! Blue's a wonderful colour to start life with. There's room for every kind of human in blue. There's a whole spectrum, because blue doesn't demand, It doesn't demand action like all the other colours, right? Think about this. You're stuck in traffic, and the lights turn blue. <laughs> less road rage, people, less road rage. More accidents, ironically <laughs> enough. Well, I get mistaken for a man quite a lot, quite a lot, but not for long. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, my masculinity doesn't hold up to scrutiny, I'm only man at a glance, um, which means, you know, it happens in a customer service situation usually, and because I'm only man at a glance it means that uh, I'm still very much right there, still, right in front of the person who's just called me sir, <laughs> and deeply regrets it. The really good ones, uh, just to raise my memory of being called sir. They're very clever. It's a very clever trick. And they do that with a combination of hypnosis and the magic word. They <laughs> okay. go, can I help you, sir? Madam. <laughs> and it works. Oh, God. I do not remember being called sir if someone calls me madam immediately after. <laughs> because madam is a very triggering word for me. It is. It's what my mum used to call me when I was in a lot of trouble. (laughs) For opening a brothel. (laughs) Can we just have more words? It's the apology I don't understand when people apologise for mistaking me for a man. I got it on a flight recently, walking on the cabin manager. Welcome aboard, sir. I said, oh, madam, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. She's <laughs> like, oh, it's OK. <laughs> it's not like you called a man, madam. That could have... <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, don't worry. She said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I said, don't apologise. In fact, I should thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> Never apologise. <laughs> don't apologise. I, I, look, I'm, I don't identify as transgender, but I'm partial to a holiday. <laughs> I love being mistaken for a man, because it's just for a few moments, life gets a hell of a lot easier. I'm top shelf normal, king of the humans. I'm a straight white man. I'm about, I'm about to get good service for no fucking effort. <laughs> Do not apologise. I was going to take my assigned seat and both the armrests. Your niece's space, just jokes though, clearly just jokes, <laughs> just jokes. I wouldn't want to be a straight white man, not, not right now. This is not in this moment in history. It is not a good time to be a straight white man. I wouldn't want to be a straight white man, not, not if you paid me, although the pay would be substantially better. <laughs> no. No, I don't think it's an easy time. Easy time for you fellas. I do feel for you. Um, very difficult, very confusing time um, because... And you're not coping um, because for the first time ever, you're suddenly a subcategory of human. <laughs> right? You're like, no, we, we invented the categories. So we're not supposed to play. We're human neutral. <laughs> no, not anymore. I, I've always been judged by what I am. Always been a fat, ugly dyke. I'm dead inside. I can cope. (laughs) But you fellas... (laughs) You're like, nah, you hear straight white man, and you're like, nah, nah, that's reverse sexism. Mm, No, it's not. You wrote the rules. Read them. (laughs) Just jokes, though. Banter. Don't feel intimidated. (laughs) Just locker room talk. Just jokes though. Just jokes. Do you know why I love picking on straight white men and telling jokes about straight white men? Because they're such good sports. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, good joke about (laughs) me. It's a refreshing perspective. (laughs) If you hate men so much, why do you try so fucking hard to look like (laughs) one? because you need a good role model right now, fellas. them <laughs> <Dropping> like flies. <laughs> but jokes aside, if I may just give you a little human-to-human advice. Because I do understand it is a difficult and confusing time for you now. You know, it's changing, it's shifting, and I understand that. But may I just... Uh, you know suggest that you learn to sort of move beyond your defensiveness right that's your first point you're you're stuck on it but you need to get some space around it learn to develop you know try and develop a sense of humor about it or you need to lighten up learn to laugh I tell you what might help how about a good dicking get a cock up you drink some jizz you're gonna laugh weird advice isn't it Weird. Doesn't, doesn't. It's not good, is it? Doesn't feel very nice, does it? <laughs> Laughter's the best medicine, they say. I don't. I reckon penicillin might give it the nudge. <laughs> there is truth to it, though. Oh, there is truth to it. Laughter is very good for the human. It, very, it really is. You know, because when you laugh, you release tension. And when you hold tension in your human body, it's not healthy. It's not healthy psychologically or physically. So it is good to laugh. And it's even better to laugh with other people. When you laugh in a room full of people, when you share a laugh, you will release more tension because laughter is infectious. So you stand to release more tension when you laugh with other people than you would if you laugh alone. Mainly because when you laugh alone, that's mental illness and that's a different (laughs) kind of tension. Laughter doesn't help. Trust me. (laughs) Tension isolates us and laughter connects us. Good result. Good on me. What a guy. What a guy. I'm basically Mother Teresa. But uh, just like Mother Teresa, uh, my methods are not exactly charitable. (laughs) Let me explain to you what a joke is. Uh, and when you strip it back to its bare essential components, like its bare minimum, a joke is simply two things. It needs two things to work: a setup and a punchline. And it is essentially a question with a surprise answer, right? But in this context, what a joke is is a question that I have artificially inseminated. <laughs> Attention, I do that that's my job. I make you all feel tense, and then I make you laugh, and you're like, oh, thanks for that. <laughs> oh, I was feeling a bit tense. <laughs> I made you tense. This is an abusive relationship. <laughs> Do you know why I'm such a funny fucker? Do you know? It's because i you know, I've been learning the art of tension diffusion since I was a children. But back then, it wasn't a job, wasn't even a hobby. It was a survival tactic. I didn't have to invent the tension. I was the tension. <laughs> I, I, I'm tired of tension. Tension is making me sick. It is time I stopped comedy. I have to quit comedy. But, I mean, I, mean, I can't quit you. I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't quit you. I can't. Because I don't have a backup plan, guys. <laughs> um, what have I got? 15 years ago, I barely graduated from an art history degree. 15 years ago, art history. 15, they were dead then, they're just deader. <laughs> my, my CV is pretty much just a cock and balls drawn under a fax number. Could you imagine me working in a gallery? Could you imagine me with an asymmetrical woolen poncho with an aggressive fringe? (laughs) Nasty jewellery having the opinions? No, there's, you know, art history's highbrow, I don't really belong in that world, I'm not from that world, I'm not from money or even that much chat if I'm honest, but <laughs> high art, you know, that, that's what elevates and civilises people, you know, the galleries, the ballet, the theatre, all these things, you go there, you get better. Comedy, lowbrow. When, I'm sorry to inform you, but nobody here is leaving this room a better person. We're just rolling around in our own shit here, people. (laughs) But a couple of years ago, uh, a man came up to me after uh, my show. Uh, He had an opinion. (laughs) Lesbians give feedback. Men, opinions. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Now, I'd spoken about in the show, I'd spoken about uh, taking antidepressant medication, and he had an opinion on that. Um, now, interestingly, I'd also spoken about uh, how unhelpful unsolicited advice is in a <laughs> mental health plan, but he mustn't have heard that bit. <laughs> he came up to me after the show to give me his opinion. He said, you shouldn't take medication because you're an artist. It's important that you feel. He said, if Vincent van Gogh had a taken medication, we wouldn't have the sunflowers. <laughs> I never, ever, ever thought that my art history degree would ever come in handy. <laughs> well, oh, my Lord. Oh, I tore that man a college debt-sized new asshole. <laughs> I said, good opinion, mate. Except that he did medicate. A lot. He self-medicated a lot. He drank a lot. He even nibbled on his own paints. Problem. (laughs) But also, you know what else? You know, he didn't just paint sunflowers. He did quite a few portraits of psychiatrists. Not even random ones. Psychiatrists who were treating him and medicating him. And there's one particular portrait of one particular psychiatrist and he's holding a flower. And it isn't a sunflower. It's a foxglove, and that foxglove forms part of a medication that Van Gogh took for epilepsy. And that derivative of the foxglove plant made a fucking case. I must have skipped a dose that day because I was feeling. <laughs> the derivative of the foxglove, if you overdose it a bit, you know what happens? You can experience the colour yellow too intensely. <laughs> so perhaps we have the sunflowers precisely because Van Gogh medicated. <laughs> what do you honestly think mate, I said, what do you honestly think? That creativity means you must suffer, that is the burden of creativity, just so you can enjoy it. Fuck you, mate. If you like sunflowers so much, buy a bunch and jerk off into a terrarium. <laughs> Do you know what he said? He goes, oh. no need to be so sensitive. <laughs> I'm not being sensitive, I'm an artist. That's feeling. Don't be so sensitive. Oh, that is the most common nugget of advice I get. Because I'm I'm a very sensitive person. But I get told to stop being so sensitive an awful lot. And it is always yelled. (laughs) Which I find very insensitive. (laughs) I don't get it. Stop being so sensitive. I don't understand. Why is insensitivity something to strive for? I happen to know that my sensitivity is my strength. I know that. I know that it's my sensitivity that's helped me navigate a very difficult path in life. So when somebody tells me to stop being so sensitive, you know what, I feel a little bit like a nose being lectured by a fart. (laughs) Not the problem. Yeah, I feel like uh, in, in a comedy show, you know, there's no room for the best part of the story, um, which is the ending. You know, in order to finish on a laugh, you know, you have to end, you know, with punchlines. Uh, like, take my coming-out story, for example. The best part of that story is the fact that Mum and I have a wonderful relationship now. More than mother and daughter, we're friends. We trust each other. Look what I've done to the room. No tension. You're just going, eh, yeah, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> Got a good relationship with your mum, have you? <sighs> Can you go back to the tension? <laughs> that was hilarious. But, yeah, that, uh, mum said to me last year, she said, I'm very proud that I raised you kids without religion. Now, I'd love to give you guys context on that, but that's not how my mum runs a conversation. <laughs> I have no idea why she brought that up in Target. I don't know. <laughs> no idea. She says, I'm very proud that I raised you kids without religion because, you know, I've raised five children with minds of their own. And I've just sort of gone, yeah, hey, good on you. What aren't you proud of, Mum? I was home for a week, we had time. Um, <laughs> because uh, Mum and I have established jokes around this difficult time in our life. We really don't. We banter, if you will. I say things like, Mum, you made my life very difficult. And she'll go, yeah, well, I don't think I liked you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and we laugh. Because <laughs> you've got to laugh. And, uh, <laughs> but not this day. She went quiet and got tense. But what my mum eventually said to me is pretty much at the core of why I'm questioning comedy. She said to me, the thing I regret is that I raised you as if you were straight. I didn't know any different. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I knew well before you did that your life was going to be so hard. I knew that and I wanted more than anything in the world not to be the case but I now know I made it worse. I made it worse because I wanted you to change because I knew the world wouldn't. And I looked at my mum in that moment and I thought how did that happen? How did my mum get to be the hero of my story? (laughs) She evolved. I didn't. (laughs) I think part of my problem is, is comedy has suspended me in a perpetual state of adolescence. The way I've been telling that story is through jokes. And stories, unlike jokes, need three parts, a beginning, a middle and an end. Jokes, only two parts, a beginning and a middle. And what I had done with that comedy show about coming out, was I froze an incredibly formative experience at its trauma point, and I sealed it off into jokes. And that story became a routine, and through repetition, that joke version fused with my actual memory of what happened. But unfortunately, that joke version was not nearly sophisticated enough to help me undo the damage done to me in reality. Punchlines need trauma because punchlines need tension and tension feeds trauma. I didn't come out to my grandma last year because I'm still ashamed of who I am. Not intellectually, but right there. I still have shame. You learn from the part of the story you focus on. I need to tell my story properly. Because the closet for me was no easy thing to come out of. From the years 1989 to 1997, right, this is 10 years, effectively my adolescence, Tasmania was at the centre of a very toxic national debate about homosexuality and whether or not it should be legalised. And I'm from the northwest coast of Tasmania the Bible Belt, 70% of the people I lived amongst believed that homosexuality should be a criminal act. 70% of the people who raised me, who loved me, who I trusted, believed that homosexuality was a sin, that homosexuals were heinous, subhuman pedophiles, 70%. And by the time I identified as being gay, it was too late. I was already homophobic. And you do not get to just flick a switch on that. No, what you do is you internalise that homophobia and you learn to hate yourself, hate yourself to the core. I sat soaking in shame in the closet for 10 years because the closet can only stop you from being seen. It is not shame-proof. When you soak a child in shame, they cannot develop the neurological pathways that carry thought. You know, carry thoughts of self-worth. They can't do that. Self-hatred is only ever a seed planted from outside in, but when you do that to a child, it becomes a weed so thick and grows so fast, the child doesn't know any different. It becomes as natural as gravity. When I came out of the closet, I didn't have any jokes. The only thing I knew how had to do when I came out of the closet was to be invisible and to hate myself. It took me another 10 years to understand that I was allowed to take up space in the world, but by then I'd sealed it off into jokes like it was no big deal. I need to tell my story properly because I paid dearly for a lesson that nobody seems to have wanted to learn. And this is bigger homosexuality this is about how we conduct debate in public about sensitive things it's toxic it's juvenile it's destructive we think it's more important to be right than it is to appeal to the humanity of people we disagree with ignorance will always walk amongst us because we will never know all of the things I need to tell my story properly because you learn from the part of the story you focus on Take Vincent, old mate, Vincent van Gogh. The way we tell his story, it's no good. It's destructive, because we've reduced it to a tale of rags to riches. He only sold one painting in his life, you know? Now look at him, (laughs) he's quite dead. Yeah, but very successful. (laughs) Only sold one painting in his lifetime. (laughs) And people believe, you know, with that story, that Van Gogh was just this misunderstood genius, you know? He's, you know, born ahead of his time. What a load of shit. Nobody is born ahead of their time. It's impossible. (laughs) Nobody is born ahead of their time. Maybe preemie babies, but they catch up. (laughs) Artists don't invent zeitgeists. respond to it. He was not ahead of his time. He was a post-impressionist painter painting at the peak of (laughs) post-impressionism. Peter was picking his pickled pepper. (laughs) He wasn't born ahead of his time. He couldn't network because he was mental. He was crazy. He had unstable energy. People would cross the street to avoid him. That's why he didn't sell any more than one painting in his lifetime. He couldn't network. This whole idea this romanticising of mental illness is ridiculous. It is not a ticket to genius. It's a ticket to fucking nowhere. And artists are not these incredible, you know, mythical creatures that exist outside of the world. No, artists have always been very much a part of the world and very, very firmly attached to power. Always, always power and money, art is always there. Right back to the Renaissance, oh, the turtles, all of them. All of them. They knew how to network. Leonardo, <laughs> Raphael, Donatello. Oh, they're right up there. Painting their own business cards, schmoozing. Michelangelo was a bit difficult. He was a bit, he was a bit crazy. But you know, he did, he still networked. He gave gobbies to the Pope. He <laughs> kissed his ring, literally. But I think it's a shame that art history uh, is such an elitist sport. Uh, It taught me a lot, you know, useless as far as a money earner is concerned, but I learned a lot about the world because of art history. I understand this world. I understand this world very well. I understand the world that I live in because of art history. I understand the world that I live in and my place in it. I don't have one. And do you know how much time that saved me? Oh, I'm quite old, but look at the skin. Um, That's because I haven't wasted time looking for how I fit in. I don't. Lot of naps. <laughs> Art history taught me there's only ever been two types of women, a uh, virgin or a whore. <laughs> Most people think that Miley Cyrus and Taylor Swift invented that binary, but it's been going on <laughs> thousands of years. There's only ever been two options for a little girl to grow up into, a virgin or a whore. We're always given a choice, take your pick, ladies choice, that's the trick. Ah, uh, the patriarchy, it's not a dictatorship. Take it short, please. And I don't fit very neatly into either of those categories. Virgin or whore? I mean, on a technicality, I'd get virgin. <laughs> I do know. Do you know, if you go into a gallery with the oldie paintings there, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that women have existed for a very long time. Longer than clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, not this masculine of centre lesbian situation here. And I, I, art history taught me, like, you know, I, I look at these history women and I don't feel like I'm the same species. There's a lot of things that I do and it's not a constru- identity construction. No, I, I, it just things happen naturally and art history taught me that these things are not really the place... Of a, of a woman you know and one of the things I do is I can generate thoughts to my own brain unprompted I can do that all the time oh oh, had another one they just come all the time and uh, art history taught me uh, you know historically women didn't have time for the think thoughts they didn't have time they were too busy napping naked alone in the forest even uh, bio- biologically, I-, I don't feel like I'm the same species. Uh, for a start, I've got a functioning skeletal system. Uh, if you go into the galleries, you see if a woman's not sporting a corset and/or a hymen, she just loses all structure. <laughs> just sort of like oh, just flopping about all over the place, going oh, what does furniture? Side <laughs> so saddle tits a gimbal. No wonder we can't reverse park, ladies. Dumb history woman couldn't even reverse park their ass onto a chair. <laughs> Another thing that I do is not very ladylike, is every day I seem to be able to finish the getting of the dressed. Every day, <laughs> not a problem. All the buttons all the way up. And I'm quite a vague and forgetful person, but <laughs> seem to do it quite easily. Uh, <laughs> especially if I'm leaving the house to get my portrait painted. <laughs> Never once have I thought, you know what? Today, I might just leave a cheeky one out. <laughs> High art. I'm going to call it, guys. Bullshit. <laughs> High art my ass. The history of Western art is just the history of men painting women like their flesh vases for their dick flowers. Having, having said that, I think I've ruined it, any chance of getting a job in a gallery now. <laughs> I think I could pay to be a volunteer guide. Because <laughs> it doesn't get any better with modern art either, i tell you that. I trip on the first hurdle. Pablo Picasso, I hate him, but you're not allowed to. Hate him, but you can't, Cubism. And if you ruin, <laughs> if you ruin Cubism, then civilization as we know it will crumble. Cubism, aren't we grateful in this room? <laughs> that we live in a post-Cubism world. <laughs> Isn't that the first thing we all write in our gratitude journals there? Oh, thank God. I don't like Picasso. I fucking hate him. I I just he's rotten in the face, cavity. I hate Picasso. I hate him, and you can't make me like. But you got a lot. Oh, Cubism. (laughs) And I know I I know I should be more generous about him too, because he suffered. He suffered a mental illness. But you see, nobody knows that, because it doesn't fit with his mythology. They go, I think you're thinking of Van Gogh. (laughs) No, I'm thinking about them all actually. But. Because uh, Picasso, you know, he sold to us as this passionate, virile, tormented genius man ballsack, right? There's no room in that story for, oh, is there? No. That no? There's <laughs> it's rhetorical, but there's. <laughs> <laughs> But but he did suffer a mental illness, Picasso did. He suffered badly and it got worse as he got older. Picasso suffered uh, the mental illness of misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) Split the (laughs) room. Didn't I? And I bet you I know how that felt. Um, (laughs) is misogyny a mental illness? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Especially if you're a heterosexual man. Because if you hate what you desire, do you know what that is? fucking tense. <laughs> sort your of shit out. Yeah, he did suffer from a mental illness and smarter men than I have proved that he didn't suffer a mental illness but they're, prob- nah, they're wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, they'd say that he's not misogynist. They're wrong. He was. If you don't believe me let me provide you a qu- quoth from picky asshole himself. He said "Each time, each time I leave a woman I should burn her. Destroy the woman, you destroy the past she represents. Cool (laughs) guy. The greatest artist of the 20th century. (sighs) Let's make art great again, guys. (laughs) Picasso, fucked an underage girl. And that's it for me. Not interested. But (laughs) cubism. You need it. Marie Therese Walter, she was 17 when they met, underage. Legally underage. Picasso was 42, married at the height of his career. Does it matter? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it actually does. It does matter. But as Picasso said, no, it was perfect. I was in my prime, she was in her prime. Hmm. I probably read that when I was 17. Do you know how grim that was? <laughs> oh, I'm in my prime. Oh, no. oh, there is no view at my peak. <laughs> but I wasn't upset at the time, of course, because I was learning about cubism. <laughs> now, I should, I should qualify this, though. Cubism is important. You know, it really is. It was a real game-changer. Picasso freed us from slavery, people. He really did. You know, he, he freed us from the slavery of having to reproduce believable three-dimensional reality on a two-dimensional surface three-point perspective, that illusion that gives the idea of a single, stable worldview, a single perspective Picasso said no run free, you can have all the perspectives, that's what we need all of the perspectives at once, from above, from below inside out, besides, all the perspectives at once, thank you Picasso, what a guy what a hero thank you, but tell me, any of those perspectives are womans <laughs> no interested you just put a kaleidoscope filter on your cock you're still painting flesh vases for your dick flowers. <laughs> oh. Separate the man from the art that's what I keep hearing you've got to learn to separate the man from the art the art is important not the artist you've got to learn to separate the man from the art yeah all right okay let's give it a go. How about you take Picasso's name off his little paintings there and see how much his doodles are worth at auction? Fucking nothing. Nobody owns a circular Lego nude. They own a Picasso. (laughs) Sorry. You won't hear too many extended sets about art history in a comedy show, so... (laughs) You're welcome. It's bold, I know. Comedy we're more used to, you know, throw away jokes about priests being pedophiles and Trump grabbing the pussy. I don't have time for that shit. I don't. Do you know who used to be an easy punchline? Monica Lewinsky. Maybe. If comedians had done their job properly and made fun of the man who abused his power, then perhaps we might have had a middle-aged woman with an appropriate amount of experience in the White House. Instead, as we do, a man who openly admitted to sexually assaulting vulnerable young women because he could. what should be the target of our jokes at the moment? Our obsession with reputation. We're obsessed with it. We think reputation is more important than anything else, including humanity. And do you know who takes the mantle of this myopic adulation of reputation? Celebrities and comedians are not immune. They're all cut from the same cloth. Donald Trump, Pablo Picasso, Harvey Weinstein... Bill Cosby, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, these men are not exceptions, they are the rule. And they're not individuals, they are our stories. And the moral of our story is we don't give a shit, we don't give a fuck about women or children. We only care about a man's reputation. What about his humanity? These men control our stories, and yet they have a diminishing connection to their own humanity, and we don't seem to mind so long as they get to hold on to their precious reputation. Fuck reputation. Hindsight is a gift. Stop wasting my time. If you... Look, I am angry. (laughs) I apologise. I do. I apologise. I, I know there's a few people in the room are going. Ah, look, I think I think she's lost control of the tension. <laughs> That's correct. I'm, I need a bit there. Oh. Uh, so I'm not very experienced in in you know controlling anger. It's not my place to be angry on a comedy stage. I'm supposed to be doing self-deprecating humour. Um, people feel safer when men do the angry comedy. Uh, they're the kings of the genre. When I do it, I'm just a miserable lesbian, ruining all the fun on the banter. When men do it, heroes of free speech. (laughs) I I love angry white man comedy. Oh, oh, so funny, it's hilarious. They're adorable, why are they angry? (laughs) What's up, little fella? What are they angry about? Gosh, can't work it out. They're like the canaries in the mine, aren't they? If they're having a tough time, the rest of us are gone. (laughs) (laughs) remember that story I told about that young man who almost beat me up? It was a very funny story. It was very funny. Uh, I made a lot of people laugh about his ignorance and the reason I could do that is because I'm very good at this job. I actually am pretty good at controlling the tension and I know how to balance that to get the laugh at the right place. But in order to balance the tension in the room with that story, I couldn't tell that story as it actually happened because I couldn't tell the part of the story where that man realised his mistake and he came back and he said, oh, no, I get it. You're a lady faggot. I'm allowed to beat the shit out of yous and he did. He beat the shit out of me and nobody stopped him. And I didn't didn't report that to the police, and I did not take myself to hospital, and I should have. And you know why I didn't? It's because I thought that is all I was worth. And that is what happens when you soak one child in shame and give permission to another to hate. And that was not homophobia, pure and simple, people. That was gendered. If I'd have been feminine, that would not have happened. I am incorrectly female, I'm incorrect and that is a punishable offence. And this tension, it's yours. I am not helping you any more. You need to learn what this feels like because this, this tension is what not normals carry inside of them all of the time because it is dangerous to be different to the men. To the men in the room, I speak to you now, particularly the white men, especially the straight white men, pull your fucking socks up. How humiliating. Fashion advice from a lesbian. That is your last joke. Life, I've been told that I'm a man hater. I don't hate men, I honestly do not. I don't hate men. But there's a problem. You see, I don't even believe that women are better than men, I believe women are just as corruptible by power as men, because you know what fellas, you don't have a monopoly on the human condition you arrogant fucks, (laughs) but the story is as you have told it, power belongs to you and if you can't handle criticism, take a joke or deal with your own tension without violence, you have to wonder if you are up to the task of being in charge. I am not a man-hater, but I am afraid of men. If I'm the only woman in a room full of men, I am afraid. And if you think that's unusual, you're not speaking to the women in your life. I don't hate men, but I wonder how a man would feel if they'd have lived my life. Because it was a man who sexually abused me when I was a child. It was a man who beat the shit out of me when I was 17. My prime. It was two men who raped me when I was barely in my 20s. Tell me why is that okay? Why was it okay to pick me off the pack like that and do that to me? It would have been more humane to just take me out to the back paddock and put a bullet in my head if it is that much of a crime to be different. I don't tell you this so you think of me as a victim. I am not a victim. I tell you this because my story has value. My story has value. I tell you this because I want you to know, I need you to know what I know. To be rendered powerless does not destroy your humanity. Your resilience is your humanity. The only people who lose their humanity are those who believe they have the right to render another human being powerless. They are the weak. To yield and not break, that is incredible strength. You destroy the woman, you destroy the past she represents. I will not allow my story to be destroyed. What I would have done to have heard a story like mine. Not for blame, not for reputation, not for money, not for power, but to feel less alone, to feel connected. I want my story heard because ironically, I believe Picasso was right. I believe we could paint a better world if we learned how to see it from all perspectives, as many perspectives as we possibly could, because diversity is strength. Difference is a teacher. Fear difference, you learn nothing. Picasso's mistake was his arrogance. He assumed he could represent all of the perspectives, and our mistake was to invalidate the perspective of a 17 year old girl because we believed her potential was never going to equal his. Hindsight is a gift, can you stop wasting my time? A 17 year old girl is just never, ever, ever in her prime. Ever. I am in my prime. Would you test your strength out on me? There is no way, there is no way anyone would dare, dare test their strength out on me because you all know there is nothing stronger than a broken woman who has rebuilt herself. To the men in the room (laughs) who feel I may have been persecuting you this evening, well spotted. (laughs) That's uh, pretty much what I've done there. (laughs) But this is theatre, fellas. I've given you an hour a taste. I have lived a life. The damage done to me is real and debilitating. I will never flourish. But this is why I must quit comedy, because the only way I can tell my truth and put tension in the room is with anger. And I am angry, and I believe I've got every right to be angry, but what I don't have a right to do is to spread anger. I don't. Because anger, much like laughter, can connect a room full of strangers like nothing else. But anger even if it's connected to laughter will not relieve tension because anger is a tension it is a toxic infectious tension and it knows no other purpose than to spread blind hatred and i want no part of it because i take my freedom of speech as a responsibility and just because i can position myself as a victim does not make my anger constructive it never is constructive Laughter is not our medicine. Stories hold our cure. Laughter is just the honey that sweetens the bitter medicine. I don't want to unite you with laughter or anger. I just needed my story heard, my story felt and understood by individuals with minds of their own. Because like it or not, your story is my story. And my story is your story. I just don't have the strength to take care of my story anymore. I don't want my story defined by anger. All I can ask is just please help me take care of my story. Do you know why we have the sunflowers? It's not because Vincent van Gogh suffered. It's because Vincent van Gogh had a brother who loved him. Through all the pain, he had a tether, a connection to the world. And that is the focus of the story we need, connection. Thank you.